So tonight we pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue again. That would be in Capernaum, the region of Galilee. And a man was there who had a withered hand. So they, that is the religious leaders, they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Well, it's been building, and now here in chapter 3, we get introduced to us by the Holy Spirit through this record in Mark's Gospel of the open hostility and the plotting. Now, you think about it, this should be a really wonderful story. The focus of the story should be a man being healed who had a a withered hand, something wrong, a deformed hand of some sort, and Jesus, being God, can just speak it and do it. Of course, Jesus could have healed on any other day, but he purposely did things on the Sabbath to show the folly and the error of the teachings of the Pharisees who exalted the Sabbath over God's word and exalted the Sabbath over God's purpose for man to refresh man on the Sabbath. We saw that last week when we ended chapter 2. It's tough because sometimes there's really great opportunities for ministry and there's really neat things that God puts on your heart and neat things that you can see that he wants to do. But because it's a spiritual kingdom and it's a spiritual battle and Whenever something good in the Lord's happening, there's usually something of a spiritual battle related to it. It's just the reality of it. Paul the Apostle summed it up really well when he said to the Corinthians, a great and effective door of ministry has been opened to us, but there are many adversaries. And so often when we look at the book of Acts, when the church is expanding in that first generation, we see incredible things happening and then opposition and people plotting evil and the conflict. I was watching a, a thing on YouTube recently about how to write a book. Okay, that's how far I got with the project. And uh, so how to write a book. You know, like I, well, my son Luke says, I go, Luke, how do you do this? He goes, Dad, just Google it, right? So I Google on YouTube how to write a book. And it turns out I get the guy who wrote the Left Behind series. He's, I didn't know it when I was listening to it. But he said when you write a book, he says it's really important that you have to have Good conflict. Conflict is very important in a book. No matter what the story is, a biography, a factual, fictional, historical, you need conflict. You need a, a story that creates conflict and agitation because that's the human experience, and we, we move toward that. So we want to see the underdog be victorious, or we want to see the win after the defeat. And, we, and I was like, man, I don't like conflict. Can't we just write a book like, and they live happily ever after, and that's all you have to write? You know, like, they got saved, they live happily ever after. The conflict, though, is just part of it. It's The conflict's been there, and it's there, and the conflict is going to be there for the church of Jesus Christ. We're a kingdom of love, we're a kingdom of grace, we're a kingdom of mercy, and we're a kingdom of truth. And we're a kingdom with full authority over everything on this planet through humility and submission to the Father. And, but the kingdom of men resist it, and the violent take it by force, Jesus said. And you can't get away from these conflicts. And I would love to say, isn't it beautiful that Jesus healed us with a man's hand? And how beautiful that would be to be able to do that. 
especially in that culture, you'd be considered like God was against you or something. People would just make that assumption that what did this person do? Who sinned? His father or his mother, right? With the blind guy in John chapter 9. It's like, it's a beautiful thing what Jesus did here. It's a beautiful thing. And we just want to keep that in mind. It's a beautiful thing. Because so often when there's a beautiful thing, there's just something ugly going on around it. And we have to keep our eyes on the beautiful thing. When I read a story like this, I want to I wanna move on from the story. Like, that's a beautiful thing what Jesus did. Yeah, these people are plotting and conspiring to destroy Jesus. Yeah, they were silent when he said to him, is it good to do good? It's a good thing. Is it, good? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good and to give life? Or should we do evil and kill? He was contrasting who he was and what he was doing on the Sabbath to these religious leaders and what they did on the Sabbath. Because, of course, he called them out. He said, you'll rescue your sheep or goat if he falls in a pit, but you don't care about a son of, of Adam and who's created in God's image and glory for his purposes. It's a beautiful thing. But verse 5 does get our attention because Jesus shows that human emotion where it says he was angered, being grieved by the hardness of their heart. There are times it's, it's hard to stay on point with the good things of the Lord when we experience human emotion of anger and grief because things grieve us and we're angered because of humanity and and bad things and how they affect our life and our world. And anger is an emotion that God gave us. And we see Jesus express anger. Just because we're angry doesn't mean we're in sin. The Bible says be angry, but to, to not give in to sin through anger. And there are things that anger the Lord. There are things that grieve the Lord. That's why when you're spirit-filled and sometimes you watch the news and you see something and you're just so vexed, you're so grieved. And that's the Lord. And you think, why aren't other people grieved? Well, in many cases, because they're deceived. That's not why they're grieved. And we need to remember that. We need to remember our capacity being born of the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer here tonight, and you're grieved by certain things that go on in our culture that are grievous that we see, and you think, why doesn't everyone else grieve? Why do people, why are people so hard-hearted, so insensitive, so callous, and so brutal? You gotta remember, people are deceived, and they're deceived by the devil. So our grief needs to become prayer for those who are deceived, and we can only hope and pray that somehow our love, our mercy, our grace, our character, our convictions, and our truth can win them to the Lord. But don't be thrown off when you're angry, and don't be thrown off when you're grieved. In fact, stay on point. You notice in this story that Jesus stays on point? Like, he addresses these guys who are there seeking to accuse him and find fault with him. But So he's, he's, he's got that compartmentalized. But he addresses the need, he meets the need, he speaks to them, is it good, bad, uh, life, or death? So it's almost like when you post something publicly in social media, other people see it, or as Nathan Anderson, my friend from Chile, used to say, I'm not posting to refute the person that's not going to receive it, I'm posting it for everyone else that's reading it to get this thought out there, a contending thought that's a, a reasonable thought based upon truth. That's what Jesus did. Jesus, in addressing these guys, he's really just putting the thought out there for everyone else in the synagogue to think about the perspective that these religious leaders had that was contrary to God's heart and to think about the common sense and the practical sense of what Jesus was saying. You stay on point. The application on this first part tonight is don't be thrown off by grievous things. Don't be thrown off by things that anger you. But Stay on point with the ministry and what God's doing. Be alert to what God's doing 
and be the healer in Jesus' name to that situation as best you can. That's the application from this text. If people plot your demise when you leave the room, they plot your demise when you leave the room. But we need to be true to what God wants to do in our life. Life is real, isn't it? Life is messy. The human experience is messy. It's life. It's death. It's Ecclesiastes 3. It's this whole wide range of emotions. And Jesus shows us how to stay on point right there. He looked at them. He was angered and grieved. But he still looked at the man and said, stretch out your arm. Compassion, empathy, on point. Verse 7, we read it on. But Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea, and Jerusalem and Indomia beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, modern Lebanon. A great multitude. And when they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many... So that as many as had afflictions pressed about to touch him, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. We see the word multitude. Verse 7, great multitude. Verse 8, great multitude. Verse 9, multitude. There were large crowds following Jesus. And you know, anyone that has a large crowd following them has opportunity, and for us in the human experience, to... To point people to Christ. But you ever notice anyone that has a large crowd following them usually has many adversaries against them because people want to control people and people don't like to see anyone having influence of any portion. It's a human experience. It's like, it's hard to explain. But the religious leaders were very much upset that the multitudes were going after Jesus. We understand that. So the multitudes were there. Now, when Jesus ministered to a multitude, we think about this. He would address a multitude. We see this many times. But we know that out of a multitude, he often ministered to individuals out of a multitude. He would see a multitude, but he'd he'd minister to individuals. Then he would also, from the multitude, you know, he had his 70, then his 12, and the big three, Peter, John, and James. But, you know, he did minister to multitudes. Simple, quick thoughts on this passage before we move on. He sought out the individuals in the multitude. In this story, we don't get that here in Mark's account. We know there's multitudes. And then these demons confessing that he's the son of God. There's a really good reason, I believe. I, you know, I've taught the Bible for over 30 years. And there's a really good reason why Jesus doesn't let demons bear testimony of him. Because he doesn't need it. They're demons. He saw them cast out of heaven. And they have no testimony. Let me say that again. Think this through. They have no testimony. Our testimony is that we're born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Our testimony is that we're passing, passing from darkness to light. Our testimony is that we've passed from death to life. Our testimony is that we've gone from condemnation to justification through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That we've been born again. He's the author and finisher of our faith. That is the testimony of the saints. We have seen and testified that we, we confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And with the mouth, confessions made. And with the heart, one believes. We have a testimony by being born again. The demons have no testimony. They're not given a second life. They don't have regeneration. They're not new creations. They don't get to share in the glory. They don't go where there's no more tears. They don't go where there's no more sorrow. They don't go where there's everlasting night in his glorious presence. They don't go to a tree of life. And they don't know the joy of his worship for all eternity. They have no testimony. And that's why Jesus takes no testimony from them. They're condemned. 
They sealed their fate when they allied themselves and identified themselves with Satan when he was cast out of heaven of a different dimension. The only only thing they do is evil. Everything they do is evil. They disguise themselves as angels of light, but they do evil. And their evil is perpetrated on humanity, the innocent, the vulnerable. Their evil is particularly directed toward you and me when we give our life to Christ, against people we're praying for, we're trying to win to Christ. Their, Their evil is directed against nations and leaders in darkness. It's a spiritual battle. They have no testimony. Keep that in mind. And I will point out one more thing in verse 9. You can almost miss that little detail, but I just quote Pastor Chuck Smith from Calvary Costa Mesa, who said that the best sense, more often than not, is common sense. And I just love this little detail. It's like there's multitudes, Jesus being pressed in, he's casting out demons, he's healing people, he's performing the supernatural in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, and he's just being inundated by people who maybe necessarily have no interest in spiritual things, but that's okay because he's still ministering to them. He had a plan, like a backup plan. You like, you just think like, oh, what's the great plan? It's like, hey, have a backup boat. Did you catch that? Like, there's nothing wrong with having like a, a good common sense plan. Like, because I, like there's a multitude. And in any given situation, I think we over-spiritualize things sometimes. Verse nine got my attention. Great multitude, great multitude, Multitude. There's three straight verses of a multitude, and Jesus being impressed, he's like, hey, you know, why don't you guys like have a boat ready just in case I gotta get in a boat to do the ministry and not be trampled by this crowd? It's just so practical. And I would just put this out there. So often God is in the practical and in the common sense. So often common sense is just good sense, especially when you're a spirit-filled person. Your common sense, more often than not, is the mind of the spirit. And I just think, like, it's good to have a plan. It's good to have a vision. It's good to have a plan. And it's good to be flexible to what God's showing you. Jesus told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude. I write goals down. You know this. I have goals for the day or tasks for the day. Macro goals for the week, macro goals for the month, for the quarter, for the year. Even today in my morning devotion, I reminded myself where I want to be in June, at the end of June with certain goals, and where I want to be in July and in August, and what God may or may not be doing. But there's no commitments to July and August till we get through the first quarter of the year, because one of the first goals I had was 100 days into 2019, pray and seek the Lord, and everything is about Jerusalem and what we're doing here as a church. 1st January, all the services tight, clean, and order. 2nd February, new ministries, the fellowship groups, the women's ministry, the men, the youth, like begin to expand the ministry and the quality of the ministry. And then April's Easter, connect with other Calvaries. I've been to this pastor's thing with Jeff Johnson. I've been to that pastor's thing with Brian Broderson. Got a, got a good sense of things going on in the Calvary world. And just, yeah, it's just, hey, have a boat ready. Like just a little bit of foresight and common sense in circumstances is a good thing. How I think Jesus saying have a boat ready, I just love it. It's like, hey, a lot of people here, we need a plan, right? Hey, okay, overflow, we need a plan. Uh, We got this going on, We, we need a plan. So I like it. Verse 13, we read on. And he, Jesus, went up on a mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. 
And then he appointed 12 that they might be with him. These are, of course, the apostles. That they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Verse 14. And have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the names Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. So now Jesus, we saw him call the apostles, we saw him call Matthew last week, and we saw him call Peter, John, and James in chapter 1. So we've seen five of these 12 already called to be his disciples and follow him, but now he's calling them to be apostles. Saturday night, when we were in Luke, Jesus talked about sitting and reigning over the 12 tribes of Israel for the apostles. And we talked about how there's 12 thrones for 12 apostles. And we talked about that just Saturday night from Luke 22, something that we saw in the text when they were arguing over who would be greatest. But here's the 12, just everyday people. I love this. We know, of course, that Jesus had a number of women that served with him as well. We know that the women were actually the ones that were really in tune down the stretch in the final week in Jerusalem with events and circumstances. We know in the upper room that women were there. But he chose 12 apostles, 12 men who were apostles. They're all Jewish. And we know that one's the betrayer. We know that Peter would deny the Lord. We know that just, they all, they're, just real, they're just everyday people. There's everyday people. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And he said to Matthew, follow me. And he immediately followed him and left his tax collecting booth, introduced all of his friends to Jesus at that supper that we saw last week in Mark 2. So, but here's a little more. Here's a little extra. And God does do things in increments in our lives. If we're faithful with a little thing, then he might give to us other things. Like each part of the journey, each chapter we, we talked about uh, new wine, going to new wineskins last week, and recently just finishing the Psalms in my devotions, those last few Psalms it mentions, sing a new song to the Lord. And we know that there's new seasons in the Lord. Life's always changing. We talked about how there in Genesis in the post-flood world that God gave the seasons, and he gives us seasons to remind us. You know, and I've, I've said, I've been co- talking about the snow, how green the fields are, how beautiful it is. When I went out to do the Memorial Saturday in Yorba Linda, I could not believe after that thunder, you know, the rain, that heavy rain came through about nine in the morning. Just the black clouds, the blue sky, the, you know, Mount Baldy and all the snow, Mount Wilson and snow, Chino Hills as green as you'll ever see them. And it was just the sky is so blue and so beautiful. And I was like, I love a real winter in Southern California. Having lived here for decades, I just, I love a real winter. Coming from the East Coast, I love the seasons. Now that I'm older, I don't want to live in the seasons. I want to look at the snow. I don't want to live in the snow, okay? Can I get a witness? But it was funny because I said to someone at the memorial, I said, man, I just love how green the hills are and how beautiful. And they said, it's going to go brown. It's going to be a fire hazard. And I spoke with someone on the phone today. I go, it's just amazing. Like, yeah, but it's all weeds. Yeah, I guess beauty's in the eye of the beholders, right? God gives us seasons. He calls us from glory to glory. And in each season that we have in our life, there's things to learn. When our kids go to college, there's things they learn, and they don't get it again. Okay? When they, the first year of marriage is unique. God says the first, marriage, first year of marriage is sanctified in Deuteronomy that a man may learn how to please his wife. It's very important in the marriage the first year. There's just certain things that, uh, there's seasons. And 
getting older now and being a grandparent and, and spending a day with our grandkid last Friday, I'm like, this is just so different because it's a little kid in the back seat looking straight ahead, zippy, because now she's too, she can face the traffic. And it's just like, and I mentioned Saturday, the VeggieTales songs from all 20 years of VeggieTales is playing a loop track. I'm like, oh, I remember them all, you know, from when our kids were little. And it's just the season. And how, how, how fun it is, but how, t- how tired you get easier when you're a grandparent. Can I get a witness? Like, it's just like, man, how do we do it? And just having one grandkid, like, how do we have four kids at the same time? Like, how do we do that? But we just did it because that was the season. And there's different seasons. And these disciples, these men all made true commitments in following Christ. They did. They were all in. So you're going to be all in first in that season of ministry preparation that Jesus would have for you in that part of your life. And then as you make yourself available, then he, you know, he can increase what he wants to do. Call to a higher level, to another level, to a greater capacity. We saw in the, we've seen in the parable of the, the minus that to him who has, to she who has, more is given. So faithfulness in the season is super important with the Lord, that we are truly faithful in the season. God puts a high premium on being uh, alert and focused, faithful in the experience or the season that we learn the lessons and we don't have to repeat them because we didn't get it. There's nothing, you know, I remember when Hannah was her first year of college at OCC, our oldest daughter, Hannah, and she took a college math class, and she didn't take it that seriously, and she was, the ship was taken on water, but it was redeemable. It was probably like uh, late September, and I begged and pleaded with her, Hannah, you can save this class, you can do this, but you're going to, no matter what, your goals go through this math class, and two years later, she took the same math class, and she said, Daddy, you were right. Yeah, like, you're not getting a degree from Vanguard if you don't get the basic math at OCC or Vanguard. Like, that's, that's how it works. Like, you know, like, you need this to get that. And if you don't get it this time, then you have a rematch with that, and you got to get it, right? So when we look at Jesus calling these apostles, they're called to more. And some people are called to more. When men become pastors, there's a higher qualification for bishops and overseers in the church. When men and women step up and they embrace the role of deacons in the local church, there's, 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 a, there's a greater accountability for them. But we see it's a great joy and a blessing to do that because the Bible says if a man desires to be a pastor, he desires a good work. And it's a wonderful work to be serving the Lord together in ministry as a husband and a wife. And we see in the book of Acts that when they chose those men to serve tables in the book of Acts, that they said, choose out from among yourselves men uh, who are full of the Spirit you know, and full of wisdom and, and, and whatnot have a good reputation, and they chose those seven, and those seven rose up, and then Philip became the evangelist, and then Stephen became the martyr, and they they served. The last two chapters, we saw five of these men called as disciples of Jesus, but now we see five of these men called to be apostles. They were faithful in the little things, and they're called up to other things, and we go from glory to glory, and we grow and learn in the experiences of a life. We don't want to go in circles. We want to grow in our timeline in where we're at in the human experience, single, married, married with kids, whatever you be, grandparents, whatever it is, whoever we are, whatever we are, we can't change yesterday. We are where we are today, and we want to grow in that experience. And what happens when you get older, you get a little smarter, where you start really scouting the future. Hmm, I'm 57, soon to be 58. This is where my parents are, and that got there pretty quick. I'm going to get there pretty quick. Social Security is in the middle of where I am now, where my parents are, 
And you just can realize, like, hey, you reverse engineer that. Hey, this, this, this journey is going quickly. When you're younger, you don't see it. When you get older, like, whoa, hey, 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 this train's got a, this train's moving, right? And you, and you realize that. And you want to be faithful in everything. And we want to, we want to be open to new adventures. Uh, we want to embrace new adventures. And I had a really encouraging word in my devotion the other day. Um, many of you in the ministry team know that Pastor Jeremy and his family are going to be uh, moving on after June. They've been a part of Worship Generation for 17 years. And we're super excited because they don't know where they're going. And I've been there so many times where God says, move on from this, and I'll tell you where you're going. But where I was like, could you tell me where I'm going before I move on from this? No, move on from this, then I'll tell you where you're going. Because that's faith. But we met as pastors and deacons the other night, and we just had a great time. And, you know, Alex is headed for Chile, and Greg's about to no longer be, he's retiring from the uh, Orange County Fire Authority, Greg McEwen, the deacon, and maybe new things for him, what God has. But, but, you know, thinking about Jeremy and these changes and, and, you know, God closing the door on all the coaching for me with surfing and all that. In John chapter 2, when Jesus does the, uh, turns the water to wine, that first miracle, we're told in John it's the first sign. You know, something I noticed there, it's been there all along, but it really struck me. The, the host of the wedding said, you know, and think about it, they ran out of wine, but who did they invite? They invited Jesus and all of his friends. They added to the wedding list. I never thought of that either. Like, you know, because you know wedding lists are tight, right? You got to feed everybody. It's like, ooh, you know, it's like, ugh. And, and so, but he says, you brought out the better wine. Most people bring out the, bat, the, the weaker wine at the end of the wedding when everyone's been a little tipsy or whatever. But you brought out the better wine at the end of the wedding. And what the Lord showed me is it always gets better with him. So as we go from glory to glory, season to season, chapter to chapter, lesson to lesson, it gets better. And you think about all the kings in the Old Testament who didn't get better down the stretch, but they could have. They could have got better. They could have got better down the stretch. And immediately I thought of Billy Graham at 97, putting on that TV crusade at 97, where he reached more people than any other crusade he ever did. That is so inspiring. That's the better wine at the end of the feast. In other words, through the eyes of faith and through the promises of God, every one of us in this room and everyone who confesses Jesus Christ, our expectancy should be for greater things in the latter portion of the feast than the first portion. Maybe not more things because we slow down, but the quality of what God's doing in our character and the quality of the fruit he's producing from our life. We got one life. We got to go for it. You got to go for it. You got to go for it. There's no holding back. You got to go for it. No one ever is on their deathbed and thinks, I did too much for the Lord. Why did I choose to be a pastor? Why did we make the commitment to be deacons? Why did we, you know, forsake all to do this ministry in Brazil or Chile or Argentina or whatever? Like, no one ever says that at the end of their life. They only lament and regret that they didn't do those things with their life. This is the main application of the night. This is the, that we should expect greater things in our tomorrow with Jesus Christ than what we lived up to today with Jesus Christ. Disciples, apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them.
that they might be with him and that he might send them. See the sequence? Look at verse 14. That they might be with him and that he might send them. You and me with him equals sent by him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. With him, sent by him, greater expectation. The best wine is about to be served if we believe it and we draw near to the Lord. From glory to glory, each new chapter, we're saved. We're radically saved through the cross. But the choice is how radically do we want to be used through submission to the power of the Holy Spirit and dependency upon Christ. He gave them power. To those who are appointed, they get the power, verse 15, to change it all. Of course the best is yet to come. Of course the best is in the future because this glory is in earthen vessels. It's a good word. Verse 20. Then the multitude came together again, so they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out and laid hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and, and by the rule of the demons he cast out demons. And so he called them to himself, and he said to them in a parable, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds a strong man. And then he will plunder his house. Surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. So, of course, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit for this generation was to attribute the miracles, the work, and everything Jesus did to the devil. Because the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So if we resist the Holy Spirit and we don't respond to the Holy Spirit, we can't be saved. And for the nation of Israel, in the context, historically, when Jesus said this, if they're not going to receive the witness of the signs and miracles as being from the Holy Spirit, they're not going to get saved. If they're saints of the devil, they can't be saved because they need to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if you're saying what he's doing is of the devil, you can't be saved. So it's their own condemnation by rejecting the work and, and attributing it to the devil as opposed to the Lord. Now, of course, the equivalent would be people resisting the Holy Spirit today. If we don't repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we cannot be saved. It's that simple. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no other way. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And God offers us forgiveness through his Son, and we put our trust in Jesus. He alone is the Savior. His name means Savior, Jesus. And he saves us from our sins. And we're born again, and we're born anew of the Holy Spirit. And we have a new life. And we can live a life pleasing to him. But if we attribute the good things of God to the devil, which many people do in our generation, it's not a good thing. For service, I watched a, a clip from seven years ago, a talk show person trying to attack Rick Warren, Pastor Rick Warren, for his position on, um, and Rick Warren was so articulate and faithful in that interview. I was so impressed. And this 
talk show person who's very famous, and they tried to make Rick look like an idiot and said, aren't you going to evolve? Do you think you'll ever regret this? And he goes, I'll never regret believing and trusting God's word for my life and preaching as a minister of the gospel. And by the way, I don't care what you think. I care about what God thinks because he's going to be the judge of my life and my ministry, not you. People want to say the good work of the Lord is a bad work. They want to call good evil and evil good. That's their business. That's a form of blasphemy in the Holy Spirit, though. Watch out. Paul talked about people who twist the scriptures. Peter talked about those who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Watch out. The main lesson of this portion was that Jesus has used common sense. How can Satan cast out Satan? What you guys say is just ludicrous. It's nonsense. But notice in verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he has an end. And the Bible tells us to be careful not to be double-minded and have a divided heart. We want our lot casted fully with the Lord. If a divided heart, that person, James chapter 1 says, we're, we're tossed to and fro. But when our heart is truly with the Lord in sincerity, we're at peace with the Lord and everything's in order. And then where we live, the people we live with, we can bring peace to that equation. But if we have a divided heart, we just bring chaos and sin and the results of sin and confusion to that equation. But if we're a person and our heart is undivided toward the Lord, we can bring grace, mercy, peace, compassion, empathy, gentleness, kindness, humility, forgiveness to that situation. Because that's what Christ is going to produce in us with an undivided heart in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then, if you have other people in the same home, a house not being divided. See, if the individual's divided his heart, the home's going to be divided. But if a person, a woman, or a man has a, a heart set toward the Lord clearly and definitively, and other people in the house are the same way, there's great unity in the home. And then if they go to church and the vast majority of people have united hearts toward the Lord, then you have a very healthy church. But if you have people that have divided hearts against the Lord privately, and then they have a divided home collectively, and they come to church, they just create more division, especially if it's a Bible-teaching church, because their hearts are divided, and they sow discord and cause problems. I've been thinking about core values lately. It's a term in the business world, of course, but ministries use it too. And you can use a person, what's our core value? Our core value is on our website, you know, to, you know, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in Orange County and to the ends of the earth. It's 15 words. It's a purpose. It's a church's purpose. It's nothing profound about it. It's like, hey, we're a football team. We're going to run the ball. <laughs> you know, it's nothing, you know, it's like we're the church. We're going to preach the gospel where we live and to the ends of the earth. It's the Great Commission. But uh, when Brian Burson shared at the pastor's, uh, pastor's breakfast last week and shared, like, the vision for Calvary Costa Mason New Year, it was really cool. You know, it's like we're a, we're a Jesus church, you know, that, that's love and truth. We're a uh, kingdom church. We see other ministries and the value of other ministries, other denominations. We realize there's 12 different tribes of Israel, and we appreciate the value the distinction of other churches, and we want to build work with them. We're not an isolationist tribe. And then we're a great commission church. So he just laid out three core values. I can recite them to you right now. Someone says, what's, what's the vision for Calvary Costa Mesa? We were praying for Costa Mesa earlier for a service. I'm like, I know exactly what the vision is. I heard it from the mouth of the senior pastor. And that's Brian's heart. I had to do the core values for USA Surfing when I was a coach. But I did them for worship generation at the time. And I've done them just thinking about like key words. And I got to tell you, when I think about core values for this church, and Jeremy's upstairs with my witness, we would agree that our, apart from the obvious things, our number one core value is the unity of the church. He's shaking his head yes. You see, because Paul said endeavor to maintain the unity that's already established. See, when we're born again, we're unified with the rest of the church. 
that unity is already in place, Ephesians 4. So we're told to endeavor to maintain the unity because it's already there. We're not trying to create something that's not there. It's already there. So when people have undivided hearts and their homes are in unity in a healthy way and they come to church, you have a healthy church. Now, we have all types of shapes and sizes of people and we're told to bear with one another and there's never the perfect church. But the more you have people with an undivided heart serving the Lord, with a unified home in love for the Lord, then they come to church and they naturally just graft in because that's where we're at. We've, we've, we've just had tremendous unity in this church in our journey. It's been tremendous unity, particularly in the leadership. But you have to work for unity, just like in your home with your kids. You've got to address things when they need to be addressed. You need to correct things when they need to be corrected. You need to put things in place when they need to be put in place. You need to set in order things that are lacking, like we saw in Titus chapter 1. Unity is there, but it, 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 you lose it when certain things happen. But then it's the responsibility of the leadership to, like, with humility and considering ourselves to work to, to try and resolve those things and, and, and come together. We should always be able to have unity of the faith and unity of character. can't always have unity on decisions, but you should always have unity on doctrine and character. Unified heart, unified home. Church of God, unified. We can do it. Finally, we close out verse 31. Then his brothers, these are the half-brothers of Jesus through Joseph and Mary, and his mother came, standing outside. They sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brother are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother, is my brother, my sister, and my mother. This text always kind of piggybacks the end of a chapter in the three synoptic gospels where the family came. And, you know, there's always that responsibility to your earthly family. And there's always that pull toward your earthly family because of your earthly family. And family's huge. Most people don't have faith in Jesus Christ. The, the next thing they have as a, the goal is the family. Right? People are like family first. So we say faith and family. Our faith precedes our family because Jesus is supreme. But if it's a healthy faith, then the family's healthy, right? We just covered that. The spiritual family is the eternal family. And you know, when I look around here tonight and look at all of you, m- most of us, if not all of us, are going to heaven because, you know, we've, I don't know if everyone's put their faith in Jesus Christ, but most of us have. And we're, we're, gonna, we're, we're, we're an eternal family. I can't say that when I hang out with all my relatives, right? Can you? Can you say that about all your relatives? When you get together at Thanksgiving, you say, we're all going to be there at the marriage feast of the Lamb, right? You, 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 you hope for that, and you, you pray for that as the journey unfolds for everybody near the end, but you, you just, but this is eternal. We need to keep that in mind, you know, like, I don't know, I was at the Voice of Martyrs Conference at Calvary Costa Mesa, and that woman got, a Chinese woman got there was in prison for six years. And I thought, man, she's my sister. I cannot even relate to her culture and what she's been through. People write bad things about me or listen to my Bible studies looking for bad stuff. That's nothing. And when the government grabs you and throws you in jail for six years, that's something, just so you know. There's a big difference. The family of God is the eternal family. And... The family of God comes through faith, but it's sealed by our obedience 
to the Lord. And look what Jesus said there. Whoever does the will of God. The will of God is that God's not willing that you should perish. So the will of God for an unbeliever, the people, all that we know, is that they be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The will of God for the church, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4, is our sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, we're set apart and we grow in the character and the conduct and the calling of the kingdom of God to become like Jesus from glory to glory. The will of God is... His word will guide it by and large, and then he'll confirm it. Well, his words in his his will is in his word, but there's like for me, like when it just says honor your father and mother, like to me, I'm the guy that's called to take care of my elderly parents. That's that's the that's the that's the fifth the fifth commandment. That's me. That's why I'm going down south tomorrow for a whole day to visit my mom, my dad, and my father in law. That's my life. That's how I live the Ten Commandments. So I know that God wants people saved. I know he wants me to grow and all of us to grow in our character and conduct. But I also know on a personal level, that's the word of God applied to my life. And, to, and we pray for those in need. We pray for others. We serve others. You know, God, you know, we, we know God's will. We seek, knock, and ask. He'll, 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 he'll show us. He'll show us. So... I'm glad there's not a mystery to it. It's a step of faith, but there's not a mystery. Get saved, be sanctified, and be available. Like, that's his will, and he'll guide us.